All right, well, good afternoon and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Um, I'll, I'll note that we did originally have two cases on the calendar for argument uh, today. Uh, the first case, State v. Trip, file number 21-688, uh, has been continued to September 14th, uh, 22, on motion of the parties. Um, and so now we're just down to the one. I show Gilland v. Adams, COA 21-691. Um, and if the, the parties are ready, we can hear from the appellant. You want to introduce us? I do. You know what? I, it's sitting here right on top of my script, and I meant to do that. I should introduce my uh, panel members. <laughs> uh, I'm Judge Toby Hampson. To my right is Judge April Wood, and to my left is Judge Jefferson Griffin. My apologies. I was just anxious for the excellent arguments to begin. <laughs> well, good afternoon, Judge Hansen, Judge Wood, and Judge Griffin. My name is Rebecca Watts, and I'm here today on behalf of the plaintiff appellant, Christopher Gilliland. Um, I would like to reserve five minutes for my rebuttal. Um, I want to thank you guys for hearing us today, and I want to start, before I start my um, argument, I do want to offer an apology for not getting my exhibit supplement filed with the rest of the record. Um, it has been filed now along with a motion to deem timely filed where I go into an explanation as to what was going on at that point that caused me to, to not get it filed timely. And I won't get into that, but just want to apologize that you guys did not get that much earlier than you did. Um, so. This is a standing case, but oddly, I'm going to start and I'm going to say the issue today is not actually whether he had standing to bring the action. The issue today is whether the trial court erred in dismissing his complaint based upon a pretrial Rule 12b-6 motion or pretrial summary judgment motion. And the procedural posture that we're here before you today is not the posture after hearing a full trial on the merits, or one in which Mr. Gilliland had to prove he had standing. And to, to have evidence of what the procedural posture was, we, we do not need to look any further than the closing attorney for um, Ms. Adams, uh, the attorney for Ms. Adams' closing argument. Uh, we're on page 750 of the transcript. In her closing, she starts, so your honor, where we are procedurally is a little funky. In our pleadings, we've made a motion to dismiss your generic 12B6 on the pleadings. And I'd argue to your honor that what has been pled in their amended complaint is not enough to get over the hurdle. She then continues, if you're unwilling to dismiss based purely on the pleadings alone, I think your honor is then at a place where you can consider our motion for summary judgment and then she continues, I believe your honor can consider a motion for summary judgment. Do you, you agree, though, that these jurisdictional issues can be kind of decided at, at sort of various postures, right? They, they can be decided on the complaint or the completings. Right. They can be decided on affidavits akin to summary judgment. And you can't even have a full-blown evidentiary yes. trial, I, yes. I guess, on the issue of jurisdiction. Yes. And, and a lot of times... And, and that, that's part of why, between the two of us, we've presented four different possible procedural postures. Because you can have one thing happen, and it can, it, maybe it was this, maybe it was that, maybe it was something else. Um, but I mean, there's no dispute that they put on five days of evidence, and even the trial court judge is like, I have never seen so much 
put into the issue of standing. And, and, and indeed, the, the trial court's order itself, while it's, it sort of recites it's deciding it as a 12B6 motion, clearly it's making findings of fact. Right. Clearly it's making what it deems to be credibility determinations, both of which are inconsistent with either a 12B6 posture or even a summary right. judgment posture. And part of our argument is that that was in error if it really was a 12B6 order. 12B6 is just failure to state a claim on its face. He doesn't have the elements. That doesn't lend itself to findings. Um, if we're looking at summary judgment, um, I guess it could be appropriate to make some findings because the judge is trying to determine whether there are genuine issues of material fact. And so we could find, well, mom says this and plaintiff says that. Is that a genuine issue of material fact? So I don't think the fact that there are facts, findings of fact made, excludes it from being a summary judgment proceeding because the judge is still having to decide, are there genuine issues of material fact? So I think what we'll hear from Mr. Odom, though, is that that sort of in the in the reality of the litigation in this in the course of the litigation the parties both parties essentially acquiesced to this sort of mini trial procedure on the issue of standing there was no objection both parties presented evidence and witnesses that sort of thing how, how do you respond to that um well i i feel confident that that's part of his argument i think that was that was part of his, his argument in the brief that you can't complain about no notice when you you were there and you participated um I still, I don't believe that the fact that you go there and you put on five days of evidence means you have agreed to change the nature of what you're there for. This was still before the judge at a pretrial stage where the question is, do, can he actually go forward with his custody claim or is there something wrong? Does his, his complaint defective? Um, even if everything in his complaint's true, does he still lose? It is, it, I, I agree, it is incredibly odd that they spent five days on this. But I also kind of liken this to almost like in a TPR sort of situation where it's everything or nothing. It is in a custody case between a biological mother and a biological father. Maybe you, you don't need to fight like it's your last fight on earth, but if it is a, like if you're in a termination parental rights case and the, the decision is, am I a parent going forward or not? Um, so kind of, I wasn't there, but in my mind, I'm thinking this is more of how this approach was. It was, I have to keep put everything I can out there or else I'm done. I don't even get to to see this child, I don't get to put on any best interest evidence. If I can't move forward on my complaint, I'm done. So kind of in, in that context, it's not, I guess, so unusual that everybody would come in with everything they had to try to resolve it at the pretrial stage. Um, and that's, I mean, I think that's, that's what's happened. And, um, you know, even in closing arguments, they're still talking about the fact that it's a 12B6 or summary judgment. Um, nowhere along the lines did they say, hey, we're here. We're essentially doing a full custody trial. Um, or even, I don't think you can even say that 
they did that without acknowledging it when at the end they're, they're circling back and saying, here's what we were here for. This alone, these pretrial motions alone. But don't you concede that it is incumbent upon the plaintiff to prove that mom has acted inconsistent with her constitutionally paramount protected right to custody of the child or has neglected the child in order to be able to move forward with, to even get to the point of best interest? If we were in a custody trial, yes. At the pretrial stage, no. Um, that, that is a threshold issue that he has to prove to move forward, but when the court's dealing with a 12B6 motion for failure to, failure to state a claim, the court is just looking at if what he has alleged in his complaint is true, does that state a claim? And so then we have to look at his complaint to see has, has he alleged a substantial relationship with this child? Has he alleged that mother has acted inconsistently with her protected status? And I guess one of the kind of different, weird, or to use the trial attorney's language, funky sort of <clears throat> things is when you normally have a romantic partner third-party custody case, that romantic partner is saying, okay, I'm, I may not be the father, but she has treated me as the father. She has vested in me parental authority. She has, you know, um, created a family with me. And we're in a situation here where it's our position that um, Ms. Adams' conduct inconsistent with her protected status was directed at two other men. Even if it wasn't directed at Mr. Gilliland, it was directed at two other men. Um, she, um, you know, she acknowledged that the one man who might have been the father, um, Sean Holusky, she thought he was a father. She treated him as a father. She made parenting decisions with him. And then um, Ryan Hyder, Dr. Ryan Hyder, she's treated him as father. At the same time, she is sending Father's Day cards to Mr. Gilliland. She's sending Father's Day cards and birthday cards to Dr. Hyder saying, you know, you, you know you're such a great daddy to, to this child. So, he, and, and Mr. Gilliland, I think everything that's alleged in the complaint plus the evidence at trial is enough to, for the court to say, did she act inconsistently? And if it were Dr. Hyder asking for custody um, and saying, hey, she treated me as father and calls, you know, he calls me daddy and um, I, I don't think there'd be a question in the trial court's mind that she acted inconsistently by ceding parental authority to him. So even if she didn't cede parental authority to Chris, she is ceding parental authority to at least two other men. And we think that the very fact that she is... Let me just I'm stop sorry, you yes. for a moment there and just to ask a clarifying question. Is it your contention that she seceded parental authority to two other men and therefore that allows the plaintiff to come in and ask for custody? Yes, as, as we think that she did cede parental authority to our client, and at least in his, in his pleading, he, what he asserts is enough to, if true, she has ceded authority to him, but behind that we have, she has acted in a manner inconsistent with her protected status, 
by ceding authority to several other people. And that is conduct inconsistent. Um, and I think of it as like a, a case where maybe it's not a romantic partner case and the biological parent has, you know, um, has become addicted to drugs. And you know what, they're still a good parent. They're not unfit because maybe they're, they're only using drugs when the child's not with them or they're an alcoholic or they've been arrested and they're in jail. It's, being in jail doesn't mean you're an unfit parent, but you've done something that's gonna send you to jail, that's gonna take you away from being with your child. That can be inconsistent with your protected status. And that's not directed at a particular person. That's just internally with the biological parent. Have they acted inconsistently? And I don't think this court has, has had this question before because it either has been a third party family friend or it's been a romantic partner where it's been allegation of we created a family together. And this one is kind of, kind of, he's saying we created a family together and she's saying no because I'm creating this other family, but his family thinks they created a family. Um, so there's, um, there, there was an affidavit of parentage filed by the, by the parties yes. in this case. That has not been set aside. No, the, um, as far as I know, it has not been set aside. There was a motion. Uh, on the record before us, I mean, oh. right? It, um, I have not inquired with trial counsel. I, honestly, I do not like to inquire too much about from trial counsel what happens. On the record before us, though, it doesn't appear that. On the record before, yes. That was set aside. And there's a birth certificate naming yes. your client yes. as the father. Yes. So given those two things under our statutes, you know, seem to create established paternity absent a judicial determination setting those right. aside. Why are we even talking about acts inconsistent at this point? Why, is, why, why are those things not enough to establish uh, standing as a, as, as, as a dad in this case? Um, well, we're here then because the trial court judge made a finding that he is not the father. So the trial court judge established paternity in the negative. But there's, and, and kind of my question is, isn't all this kind of premature? Because if there had been a legitimation action, mm -hmm. if there had been a termination of parental rights action, if there had been, I don't know, you know, paternity, whatever the, the class of action, aren't those all sort of the preliminary questions that need to be dealt with first? If this was a joint legitimation custody action, we'd right. be talking about legitimation first. Right. So are, are we just litigating all of that under the guise of standing at this point? Um, probably. Um, probably, and I, I don't know why they, they kind of took that approach. I, I mean, I do know that there is a separate child support action pending in Mecklenburg County um, where um, Mr. Wormlinger is named as the father, and there was some DNA test presented to this trial court showing Mr. Wormlinger's father, but there's no, as far as I know, again, I haven't inquired about that action either, that he, there has not been a separate establishment that some other man is the father, only an order in Lincoln County that my client is not the father. So there's not been, as far as I know, illegitimation or, um, a paternity, affirmative paternity determination made by another court. And by this point, maybe there has been, because that 
child support case is got a little age on it now. Um, and usually they, they move them along. So there's probably been a paternity test in there that we don't, we don't know about. But so and I, I acknowledge that it's very odd for me to be up here saying because she ceded parental authority to her fiance, somehow that lets her prior boyfriend <laughs> seek custody. But in reality, there, there is not anything in our case law that says in a romantic partner case, it has to be ceding authority in favor of the person making the custody claim. Um, so this is a little, a little new and different. And um, Well, but the mere fact that, that a, a mother would see some parental protected, you know, protected parental status to some third party doesn't give rise to anybody having standing. Correct. So there has, there has to be some, uh, something more affirmative, I guess, in that case. So why, Correct. Uh, um, so why don't you articulate exactly what role your client had uh, in, in the child's life? So the, the other piece of that is um, to have standing, the, the person bringing the claim also has to have or has to have a, a certain relationship with the child. It's not, statute doesn't confer upon strangers the right to, the right to bring a custody action is kind of the language that's, that's in our case law. Um, and what, based on what he alleged in his complaint, because I'm still, you know, looking at this from a pre-trial, is his complaint sufficient? Are there genuine issues of material fact? He alleged that she allowed him to be the father figure. She named him as the father. Um, he believed he was the father. He acted as the father. He paid child support. And she called it child support. She asked for child support for your son. Um, that he was in, as involved with this child as she would allow him to be. Um, and I think, you know, he acknowledges that this is not a situation where he was having, you know, every other weekend or you know, holidays on his own, but he did participate with this child in holiday celebrations, in Father's Day celebrations, and Christmas with his family, that he acted as if he were this child's father, but there was a mother who was living in contact. But what, I guess what changes if it goes to a trial? And that, um, <laughs> I mean, there was a lot Before of that last there. question, that was my next. Um, what changes if it goes to the trial is, in, at this hearing, his role was to show only that he had enough to move forward. So he's got to so establish standing. If he goes to a full custody trial, his role is to prove that he has standing, not defend against an assertion that he does not have standing, um, which means, yes, he can have a second chance at it from a different procedural posture where um, he understands and realizes that it is his job to prove he has standing as opposed to his job to defend against her allegation that he does not have standing. <clears throat> Will the end result be any different? Are we talking like, and, and whether that's kind of part of that question or the follow-up question that, I mean, I know everybody's thinking, 
well, what would change as a practical matter, even if you go to a custody trial and he proves he has standing and it moves forward? This court is, this judge has already said, I can't imagine what I would hear that I would think it's in the best interest. Um, that, I mean, that was, that was somewhat premature of the judge because, I mean, the. I'm not even talking well, about did, that. I mean, just talking about standing alone. Yeah. Like, I mean, what's going to change? Didn't the judge make adequate findings that related to standing as to why this judge believed that your client did not, in fact, have standing, that mom didn't act inconsistent with her paramount uh, protected status as a parent or neglect the child? I mean, do you concede that all those findings are in this lengthy order? Um, he, he, did, he did make those findings. Um, we believe it was error for him to make those findings under the procedural posture that it was presented to him in. So you want us to reverse on a procedural posture and send it back to the judge to make the findings again, uh, just in a different hearing? To, yes, but to allow my client the opportunity to present it as his case in chief, where he may have more to say about it than he did when it was her burden to prove he didn't have standing. And I, I, I get that we're all thinking, okay, so really, is it going to be the same result? It might be the same result. I don't know. But I also, again, go back to my termination of parental rights analogy that, um, you know, for, for two, two, two and a half years, he thought this boy was his son and, um, then lost him, found that he's not his son, and wants every chance possible to have a relationship with this this boy who he, you know, de dedicated his the books he wrote to his son. Um, so, is there a chance for a different result? Maybe, maybe not. Is it 50-50? Is it 90-10 against? I don't know, but the reality is, we don't know. And we don't know because the trial court didn't have that trial. They did not have a trial where he asserted his claim, where he had to prove he had standing. They had a trial where she tried to prove he didn't have standing and the judge treated it as if, in a way, it were his burden to prove that he did have standing. And so I think he, he deserves a chance to prove his case under the right procedural, right procedural posture. Well, skipping ahead to the minutes, uh, skipping ahead to the merits, because I'm watching your minutes run down. Um, I, I guess my question is, how, to the extent it is your burden, how much do you have to show to establish the significant parental relationship? Here. What's the standard for that? And how do you meet that standard? Um, are you talking about the, the saying, like, relationship what, like, or the conduct inconsistent or both? Well, it's a, it's a little bit of both, right? What, I mean, what parental status was, was your client being seated? Mm -hmm. How much is necessary? And, and how much does, I mean, Guess what's what's the standard to show all of that right how much do you have to show because it's not an all-or-nothing test we know that right. so 
how much you have to show, and how do you meet that standard on the evidence you presented here? And that is one of the more interesting or frustrating, depending kind of on glass half full, glass half empty, about third-party custodies. We don't know what the standard actually is. I mean, we have cases with, even back in the, the early days of romantic partner third-party custody cases when we had um, uh, those two cases that came out almost at the same time, Estroff and um, Mason, where there are very similar fact patterns, but completely opposite results. So the answer is we don't know. It's not, we don't have a checklist that says if you prove these things, then you have a substantial relationship. Um, or if you prove those things, then there's conduct inconsistent. Because um, every case that has come has been a little different, but it seems like if you go back to the beginning of third-party custody, even like pre-Peterson, if you go back to Jolly, and then, but you know Peterson's the one most people think about. Ever since Peterson, we have been inching or leaping, depending on the case, toward a situation where it is easier for a non-biological parent to assert some right to claim to a custody claim. We, um, you know, have, have step-parent cases as opposed to um, a biological parent creating a family with a non-biological parent and having two parents. Um, so, you know, we've got, we've got cases where, um, you know, he was going to adopt my child, but he didn't, and, but that is enough. Um, but every step we take is a little closer toward allowing somebody in my client's position to assert a claim for custody. And, it, and I'm not saying that's the way we want to go or the way we should go or if it's too easy for a third party to claim custody. That's just the way our law has evolved. Well, that's, what you're, that's what you're asking for. That's what we're asking for here. I'm not asking, I'm not making a broad argument that, oh, you know, gee, I am so happy and the law has evolved to this matter because it, it, it doesn't matter. The reality is the law has evolved to this, to this position. And I am into my rebuttal, but I will certainly, if you guys have any more questions on my um, initial presentation here. So that's good. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellee. Thank you, Your May it please the court, uh, I am Preston Odom and I practice law with James McElroy and Deal in Charlotte. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today to, uh, representing my client, Dakota Adams, who is the appellee in this case. Um, as Ms. Watts said, this really uh, isn't a case necessarily about the substantive issue of standing because the trial courts made that determination that her client doesn't have standing. Um, and uh, I think Judge Griffin, your question, you know, what would be different if we were, you know, what would be the remedy? The parties cut to the chase in this case. They didn't stay on the 12B6 uh, uh, motion or the summary judgment motion. Um, her client actually did present a case in chief. I mean, the transcript says it. They called the first witness. Uh, trial counsel representing my client moved to, uh, for judgment as a matter of law, essentially, in a bench trial under Rule 41. 
at the close of their evidence. There was closing arguments that, that uh, opposing counsel waived. Uh, the opposing counsel argued credibility uh, throughout the trial um, to, uh, to support his position that he somehow had standing in this case to seek custody of the minor child at issue. We, and even Ms. Watts in her uh, appellate argument called it a trial. We've had a trial. We've got unchallenged findings of fact, unchallenged conclusions of law, and it's readily apparent that what they're trying to do is just get a second bite at the apple based on a procedural quirk um, that the parties ignored. Uh, there was a, this was a five-day trial on the issue of standing, or if it's not a trial, then it was a full-blown Rule 12b1 evidentiary hearing uh, where credibility of witnesses was at issue. Uh, in fact, um, one of the uh, witnesses that they called uh, that my side objected to, to calling because this, this party was going to, or this witness was going to present evidence of things that happened after the filing of the complaint. Um, their argument was that this would be corroborating evidence to support the credibility of other witness testimony. So um, what's, the st what's the standard of review of this order we should apply from your perspective? Uh, Your Honor, it should be uh, whether competent evidence supports findings of fact if they're challenged. If they're unchallenged findings of fact, then this court takes them as true. And then whether those findings of fact support the conclusions of law that my client didn't act inconsistent with her constitutionally protected status as a parent, that uh, Mr. Gilliland did not have a sufficient uh, parent-child relationship with a minor child such that he might have standing. And on top of that, the court threw in that it wouldn't in any event be in the best interest of the child to award any custody to Mr. Gilliland if he did have standing. So under, under sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna ask, but isn't her executing the affidavit of parentage, the paternity of this child, stating that the uh, plaintiff was in fact the father of this child at the hospital when this child was born, doesn't that put him in the position of being, I mean, it obviously makes him a legal father, but in her doing that, she's giving him the status of father. Your Honor, and, and the order actually speaks to that in a couple places, and in unchallenged findings of fact. Um, in uh, finding of fact five, it talks about uh, his belief when he filed the action that he was the legal father, and then after defendant uh, mother refuted his paternity, a genetic marker test excluded him as the biological father of the minor child. That's an unchallenged finding of fact. As the minor child currently has no legal father, the unknown father was added as a party to this action. That's finding of fact six. Has the, has the affidavit of parentage been set aside? There's a statutory procedure for that, right? Has Your Honor, I, on this record, I, you cannot tell. Um, but in explanation, uh, Judge Wood, of, of what happened and how this affidavit of parentage came about, uh, there's another finding of fact that speaks to that and that is finding of fact uh, number 16, again, unchallenged. Um, and the essence of it is that uh, Mr. Gilliland often threatened my client with kicking her out of the house that she was living in, that he owned, if she didn't do the things he wanted. And um, this occurred, um, that's actually why he was at the hospital in the first place, according to finding of fact 16. And then actually in finding of fact 17, 
um, the upshot of it is that, um, he, that my client did not want Mr. Gilliland in the hospital room. Uh, there was financial pressure for him to be there and that he coerced her um, through those financial threats into naming him as the parent on the affidavit of parentage. And then uh, with respect, actually, I'm sorry, that's with respect to the birth certificate. With respect to the affidavit of parentage, the finding of the trial court is that she didn't understand what the affidavit of parentage meant, uh, meant and that she went along with his wishes. So a couple of things on these findings of fact. First of all, this is jurisdictional, right? Correct. So do we, I mean, what do we do with the case law that says we review jurisdictional findings of fact de novo? And, and two, a lot of these findings are actually more like recitations of the testimony. And so how do, we, how do you address, address that? Sure, Your Honor. Um, number one, they haven't challenged any of the findings based on some of them being recitations of the evidence. The findings that I just talked about, which I believe are the critical findings, the court recited testimony, but, this, but, um, but then said that the court found the testimony of my client's side more credible, and therefore made all of those uh, recitations of evidence um, viewed in favor of my client. Uh, and the first two that I read you, five and six, aren't qualified by way of so-and-so claimed or stated or testified. Um, and so, yeah, at the end of uh, findings of fact, 15, 16, and 17, the court talks about believing one side over the other. And so recitations of my client's side, the court actually made a finding of fact and not just a recitation of the evidence. Uh, with respect to the jurisdictional findings of fact, I still think that uh, if they're unchallenged, that they're taken as binding. And I still think if there's competent evidence to support the findings, then this court doesn't disturb the jurisdictional findings of fact because the trial court is in the best position to weigh the credibility um, of the evidence to make those findings. And so I still think that that is the appropriate standard, even when you're dealing with the uh, findings in the Rule 12b1 or Rule 12b2 context uh, from a jurisdictional perspective. Um, so I hope that answers Your Honor's Thank question. Thank you. Sure. Um, and so, again, um, the, the court made all of the requisite findings of fact necessary to support the conclusions of law, all of which are unchallenged, and all of, went, all of which were made after a full trial. Um, this is uh, here, the record on appeal and transcripts. The documentary evidence submitted by, uh, by Mr. Gilliland at trial is that entire stack of stuff. Um, he had full and fair opportunity to present a, uh, his position with respect to standing. Um, and the burden of proof that he bore was by clear and convincing evidence. And that's a high standard to meet. And the trial court hid, here said, you didn't meet it. He had the opportunity to try to do that. And we can't just myopically look at the allegations of the complaint uh, based on how this played out. Uh, you know, again, uh, Ms. Watts uh, pointed you to page 750 of the transcript dealing with um, uh, my client's trial counsel and what she argued. Uh, she then went on on page 751 after talking about summary judgment. Then the last stage is factually speaking, can you really consider, has Mr. Gilliland actually met his burden of showing 
One, that he had a substantial relationship with this minor child at the time of the filing, and second, that Ms. Adams acted in a manner inconsistent with her constitutionally protective status. And then she walks the court through uh, all of uh, her arguments as to why he didn't meet that burden. And so all trial counsel was doing in this context was saying, we've got a 12B6 motion pending, we've got a Rule 56 motion pending, but we had a trial, and here's why we should win on the issue of standing. And then uh, trial counsel for Mr. Gilliland tried to rebut that uh, in, in, um, in closing arguments and pointing to credibility issues and those types of things. And it actually didn't even stop after uh, or, or during the trial. They filed two Rule 52 slash 59 motions asking the court to make additional findings of fact. Um, if they really thought that this was 12B6 or Rule 56, they certainly wouldn't be asking for findings of fact that are inconsistent with those procedural mechanisms. And so this is the proverbial switching horses in midstream to get a better, better mount on appeal. And, and respectfully, I believe that's what's happened. So you do concede that the, the findings themselves are not challenged, including the ones that say that your client led a double life and actually led the plaintiff to believe he was the father in order for her to be able to have financial gain. And then there's that conclusion that seems to have been a balancing test, particularly number three, where it says that the court cannot find there's sufficient parent-child relationship to the plaintiff and the minor child to satisfy the requirements. But it goes on to say, mother obviously used the desire of plaintiff to be the father for her own financial gain. But when compared to the lack of parent-like child, parent-like action taken by the plaintiff, the balance favors a determination there was not sufficient parent-child relationship in this matter. How do you contend that we should deal with that? It does seem as though there's a, there, there is a burden shifting there. Uh, Your Honor, I think that uh, the party that's asserting a claim, a third party asserting a custody claim, always has the burden of proof to show standing. It wasn't my client's burden to show that there was a lack of standing. It's the plaintiff's burden to show by clear, clear, cogent, and convincing evidence that both of the prongs in the third party standing analysis have been met. And the trial court here said no. Even in the face of the adverse findings with respect to the, the double life and, and those types of things, which um, we didn't cross appeal because we won uh, at the trial level. And so um, while those aren't flattering findings of fact, um, they aren't, uh, they aren't fatal or actually, you know, dispositive in, in, in this scenario. Um, and thinking about the, the um, line of argument about, well, if a parent has acted in a manner inconsistent with their constitutionally protected status vis-a-vis -vis, uh, another person, that that could somehow uh, bootstrap standing in t for some other person. Uh, I don't think the law supports that. Uh, it, it, it just flies in the face of the requirements um, that are present in our current analysis, requiring the parent-child relationship between the person actually asserting standing. Um, and they're intertwined. And I would also suggest that actually um, best interest of the child, ultimately, if you got to that stage, um, is also somewhat intertwined with the parent-child relationship component uh, of the standing test because what we're really looking at is have you, has the parent 
set up and uh, allowed for a relationship to be between the minor child and the third party such that um, it would harm the minor, minor child not to have that party have some type of custodial stake. But isn't, isn't, that, isn't that best interest stage exactly where that kind of balancing should occur to try and figure out, okay, what is the appropriate, you know, uh, level of, of custody that should be granted, not, you know, based on the existing relationships of the parents and the, and the children and what's in the best interest of the child, not for purposes of standing, right? I mean, so it's sort of the same question. What, what would a, uh, a, a, a putative father, in this case, have to prove to establish, you know, the acts inconsistent in the parental child relationship necessary Right. Well, our case law has said, and, and I think rightly, it's on a case-by-case -case basis uh, based on a totality of the circumstances. And to have some type of checklist to meet uh, for purposes of determining whether there's a sufficient parent-child relationship, that necessarily varies from case to case. And that's why it's within the trial court's purview to hear testimony and view documentary evidence and be able to make that determination. We can't have a checklist that if you've, if you've uh, seen the child 50 days um, in the year on Saturdays, Sundays, and Mondays, um, that you meet some threshold. Uh, we, we can't have that type of bright line rule in this context, just as you can't have some type of bright line rule with respect to what ultimately is the best, in the best interest of the child. That's what the trial court looks at and that's viewed with an abusive discretion standard. And so there really is no, there's some maybe framing of parameters, such as I believe it's in the Washington case uh, that Ms. Watts was involved in, I believe representing the appellant there too. Um, but it has to be, well, the general uh, context is there has to be a significant relationship over an extensive period of time. And those are kind of the, the bookends, really. And there's a lot that falls in between. Uh, Mr. Gilliland filed this action when the child was two and a half years old. A lot of the other cases that we're dealing with, Mason versus Dwinnell and some of the others, there's a lot longer time period where there's a significant relationship between the child and the third party. Um, I'm well, not conceding I'd, I'd imagine two and a half years is a pretty significant period of time for a two and a half year old child. Well, I mean, and we can't interview the two and a half year old child or take testimony on that point. But I'm not saying that you can't form a an attachment bond um, with you know in the two and a half years. But uh, based on the findings of fact and the evidence that was submitted at the trial here, uh, it falls falls short of whatever litmus test you might come up with. Um, I just don't think that this is the type of scenario where you can create bright line rules and checklists to meet uh, for purposes of establishing standing. Um, so uh, I'm trying to, uh, I think I've hit all of the procedural posture points. Um, and again, you know, we, we presented a couple of different ways to, to I call, I, I call it the, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck argument. And the duck here is, there was a trial. 
and there was a full-blown evidentiary hearing. And both parties uh, actively participated in that. And so that's what we're presented with. That defines the appropriate standard of review, uh, just as in the recently the, the Sfredo versus Hicks case that I brought up in the memorandum of additional authorities, um, where labels don't control, um, substance controls. And what happened here was a trial. Um, and interestingly, the Sfredo case, um, this was funny, uh, quotes Edward versus Edwards from the 1970s, um, where uh, the trial court purported to have a summary judgment hearing, but then did exactly what happened here, um, made findings of fact. It was a full-blown trial, essentially. Um, and this court said, yeah, it was a trial. It's not summary judgment. And uh, one of my former law, law partners, Bill Deal, was counsel in that case. Um, and so it you know, just was interesting to note that. Um, but not only is it, you know, labels don't control, but there's also waiver principles um, under Rule 10 of the Rules of Appellate Procedure. And ultimately, the correct result, but wrong reason, um, a line of cases would control here. Uh, the, the trial court indeed cited Rule 12b-6 in its ruling, but that's not really what it was doing. It was making findings of fact and conclusions of law to make the substantive lack of standing determination. And so is it, is it your position that your client ceded absolutely none of her parental status at all here? That's correct, Your Honor. And actually, um, she actually controlled how much time um, that Mr. Gilliland could have with the minor child. That's custody and control. That's not inconsistent with custody and control. Um, and then the, the kind of angle of, of the financial angle and, and her being able to get support for the child, um, this isn't exactly on point, but uh, there's a lot of case law that talks about child support being a completely separate consideration from child custody. And if somebody's not paying support, you can't withhold the child from a custody perspective. And so there's a separation uh, of those two concepts. And I would say that would, that would hold sway here too. Um, even though we're not dealing with the typical, you know, child support being paid by a parent uh, or not being paid by a parent, and then the other natural parent saying, hey, you're not paying child support, you can't see the child. Um, you can't do that. Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's a separation between those two concepts. Uh, well, but here she seems to say you can see the child if you provide child support, right? That's but that's fine. within her control and her care and custody. Um, and so I would say that that's an act consistent, not inconsistent with that. And to the extent that she's allowed other people that she's been involved with to be involved with the child, that's also uh, within her care, custody, and control. This isn't a situation where she's entered into some type of consent order saying this person can have, you know, custody of my child on X days. Well, um, but doesn't, doesn't, isn't that, well, I mean, between the affidavit of, the par of parentage and the birth certificate. I mean, the birth certificate itself is, is establishes paternity and is an establishment that, under the statute, that the, the mother is consenting to the assertion of paternity. In, in a coerced fashion, as found by the trial court here. Um, and yeah, I find that interesting, because finding of fact number 
course, unchallenged as well, where it says the court has tremendous difficulty determining what the truth was to this case. Neither party is forthcoming or truthful in their testimony and goes on to say that it was only through third parties the court could get any idea of what actually happened in this case. So in the findings and conclusions itself, the court says both parties are untruthful and you can't rely on anything they say. Well, Your Honor, uh, I, I'm not sure if it goes that whole, the, the whole spectrum that you can't um, believe anything they've said, but I think there were lines of, of um, testimony that the trial court had a hard time believing one side or the other. Um, but with respect to those findings that I talked about, my client's sister was also there um, at the hospital. And so the court wasn't just relying on my client's testimony to make those findings. There was corroborating evidence from uh, another witness. Uh, to support those findings. And so, I, I, oh, sorry, I hear what you're saying. Uh, sorry. Um, but um, I don't think that the, the court was entirely relying upon my client's testimony for those critical findings of fact. Unless your honors have any additional questions, I'll, uh, I'll sit down. I'm good. Right. Thank you, your honor. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Oden. It occurs to me that we are doing a similar version here of what was going on in the trial court. Two completely different ideas and 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 about what was going on. And the judge is like, what the heck? Is it this or is it that? And we're coming in front of you guys doing the same thing. It's 12B6, it's summary judgment. No, it's 12B1, it's a full trial. And you guys are now in the trial court's position of saying what the heck's going on and what is this actually that we're dealing with. Um, Which kind of begs the question, then why don't we just defer to, to, to the trial court in this case? Well, you asked Mr. Odom the, the standard of review. And we, we are starting the standard review is de novo, um, which is, again, something completely different. Um, and even these credibility arguments that were made at the end of the trial, those go to the issue where there are genuine issues of material fact. Um, and there's, there's findings about the affidavit of parentage. There's her story of how that happened. There's his story of how that happened. His story is that she already had filled out his information and gave it to him to sign. And if we're looking at this in the light most favorable to him, it's okay the trial court makes the findings about what he said she said. Um, because then the trial court's next step is consider these in the light most favorable to him. Um, and so instead of it being my client's burden to prove by clear and convincing evidence that he has standing, it's her burden to prove that he does not. And the I know he put what, 12B6 in the, in the dismissal, but I mean, why is this not a 12B1? Well, the, in the conclusions of all the trial court found, it had subject matter jurisdiction. Now, the reality of the situation is standing is a prerequisite for subject matter jurisdiction. So finding no, no standing but subject matter jurisdiction kind of seems contradictory. But um, I, I, I think that the judge is like, I have subject matter jurisdiction over custody, but maybe not over this custody case. So possibly, you know, the judge could have decided it. I think we all agree. It's a little, there's, there's some conflicting things in there. Of course. But, but when we're looking at, at what it actually is versus what it's called, the substance right. over what it's called, then right. is, is there a reason it shouldn't be a 12B1? 
Um, well, it could be 12v1, and, and part of what I, I agree that it's substance that controls, which is why I also said it could have been a summary judgment instead of just 12v6. But um, even under 12v1, um, as I said in my reply brief, it still is in this pretrial procedural posture where we're looking at it in the light most favorable to him and interpreting everything in the light most favorable to him. And then just uh, Mr. Odom mentioned the uh, Chavez v. Wadlington case that I was involved in. Um, that was, there were two biological parents and then a third party, so it was a little different, but that turned on um, the trial attorney not making sufficient allegations against bio dad, only making the allegations against biological mother. Um, so that was, it was a long-term relationship, but that failed on the, on the, on the complaint. So um, I think ultimately here we're in a situation where Ms. Adams allowed Mr. Gillian to be a father so much as it benefited her. And then at a point where it no longer benefited her and he wanted to actually have his rights asserted and have a custody order, um, it was no longer in her best interest to let him be the father. And that just doesn't sit right with me. I know you guys don't make decisions on what sits right, but I, I just have to, it does not sit right with me that you let someone believe they're the father for two and a half years and then when they want more than you're giving them, say, nope, you're, you're, you're not dad and goodbye, you're out of his life forever. So we ask that you get, give him his chance to prove his case in chief. Um, even though it may look like, we don't know what additional evidence he would have in a case in his case in chief to prove his standing versus disproving hers. So, unless you have any other questions, I'm out of time or I'm past time. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, uh, and, and thanks to both counsel uh, for uh, the excellent arguments. I think we at least outlasted that uh, that immediate shower. Uh, so hopefully, uh, you'll begin your drives back to Charlotte. Uh, <laughs> In decent weather. Um, uh, with that, the uh, uh, the case is submitted, and uh, we can adjourn. Mr. Clerk. Thanks, Mark.